the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. My name is Beth Shank, nurse scientist and sustainability leader in Missoula, Montana. On the podcast, I interview nurses working at the intersection of health and environment. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Azita Amiri, assistant professor at the University of Alabama Huntsville College of Nursing, where she conducts research on indoor air quality. Dr. Amiri describes her background as a nurse midwife and her fascinating research on air quality and its impacts on health in the home and the workplace. Welcome, Azita. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Well, tell us a little bit about, first of all, your nursing background. How did you come to be a nurse? Oh, yeah, that's a long story. Actually, I was a midwife before I became a nurse. But the way that I learned midwifery is not the lay midwife. I was a, I was an educated midwife at the master's level. And in the midwifery program, we, the first two years is about all about nursing. And then after that, we are we become more specifically focused on how to give birth, how to do the family planning. So that was my background about, like, let's say, 25, 26 years ago. And then when I moved to the United States, I just wanted to pursue the same thing. But the closest that I find to midwifery background was nursing. And I just pursued my education in nursing. I started from associate degree, although I had a master's degree, but I started from the very beginning my associate, my bachelor and my master's, and then eventually my PhD PhD in nursing. And then the more I involved in nursing, I just loved it so much. Interesting. And did you, did you uh, practice in a clinical setting or did you enter uh, the academic world right away? No, I practiced in the clinical setting for a couple of years in labor and delivery unit, the one that I, I had the background on. And then that was when I, I, I had a bachelor's degree and I didn't, I haven't gotten my PhD yet. So it was about two years in the clinical setting and then I moved to academic setting. It's about eight years that I'm here in this academic setting. That's an interesting background. So as you know, on this podcast, I, we, we talk with nurses who work at the intersection of health and environment. So how did that uh, come about in your career, your interest in environmental health and air quality and other things that we'll talk more about? Yeah. So I was a nursing student when I had a two-year-old daughter. And so... All of a sudden, she got a, a fever of 106 and never came down with any of those uh, medication that we have over the counter. So I went to the doctor. They diagnosed her with ear infection first, and she got some antibiotic, but nothing happened. 106, all 24 hours a day for two or three days. And then we went back. They said that, okay, probably that's an autoimmune disease. So they gave her cortisol and other steroids, but it didn't came down, nothing happened. So we rushed her to another larger university-related hospital. And they diagnosed her with Kawasaki disease that at the time I really didn't know what is that. So the more I Googled and on the literature and I searched, I noticed that there is a relationship between carpet cleaners and also and Kawasaki disease in children, mostly girls, of age two. 
And believe it or not, I had used carpet cleaners about two or three months before this event happened. And I had cleaned my carpets with that material and I didn't know they are harmful for children. There was no label on the product, nothing about its harm for children. So I had bought it on the sh from the store because it was on the shelf and I just trusted the store and I used it and all of a sudden this happened. So, and that disease, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but that's, a, that's an autoimmune disease that may cause cardiac problems, severe ones. So she survived it. It seems like we took her to the hospital. Like you have to start uh, immune therapy about like the fifth day of the infection, the uh, fifth day when right after the fever starts. So we were like about eight or nine hours earlier than the fifth day, the, the end of the fifth day. So she survived it. But then that was the trigger for me that, okay, there are so many things in our environment that we don't know about that, that it may cause or it may harm our family, our loved ones. So that's how I got interested in environmental health. And I did more on starting from pregnant women. I started looking at indoor air quality and indoor air pollution and how it affects pregnancy outcomes and how we can educate. I have created an educa the educational materials to be used by uh, health care providers on how to assess pregnant women's exposure to some sort of indoor pollution and also, and then I got just man from the community to work with the community on environmental justice. And also I uh, had an opportunity to get some funding for building a clean room here at my college. Then I focused more on indoor air again, and I'm trying and simulating several situations. I simulate medication room at the hospitals. I simulate operating room in the hospital in my clean room to see how like using the electronic cautery or a crushing medication may affect indoor air and then harm nurses. So that's my background about environmental health. Wow, that's that's a really compelling story. What a way to get introduced to it with, you know, fear about your daughter and and also quite an extreme um, uh, condition, it sounds like, because, you know, a lot of people also use carpet cleaners and don't have that experience. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. And I'm so glad that you had a, that she had a good outcome, of course. And also so glad that it got you into this area because you have contributed quite a bit to our understanding of these exposures, um, particularly in the workforce, which um, I'm interested in as well, in terms of impacts of these events in an occupational setting. So let's just unpack some of that a little bit in terms of, um, first of all, uh, are, are there results you can tell us about in terms of working with pregnant women and indoor air quality? Are there other either issues that people should be aware of or uh, interesting study designs that you did? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yes. So in regard to pregnant women, I have had several publications and several other ones coming out probably next month. But so we have so many volatile organic compounds in indoor air that may come from the new furniture that we bring in, may come from carpets, may come from paint that we use in our uh, rooms and our house where we live. 
So based on my research and also literature all support that, furniture or nail polishing, new furniture, nail polishing, they are really harmful in increasing indoor, they have a role in increasing indoor air pollution. And uh, there is also a relationship, but I found a relationship between the uh, size of the head of the babies in the second trimester with the expo with exposure to formaldehyde, which is another type, which is a type of VOCs that can be found in indoor air and it mostly comes from uh, carpets and again, all the furniture, new furniture that you bring home. And also the other finding that we, I found and the literature supports it is that the higher temperature you set for your house, the more off-gassing of volatile organic compounds you're gonna have. So really it's important not to set your home to 80, 82, 78. Bring, you keep it cooler during the summer and also during the, during the winter time. So that's another uh, factor that may have an effect on your indoor air quality. And in another research that I have done, we I found some sort of VOCs uh, are significantly related to the weight of baby low birth at the time that they give birth. So, and also in that specific research, we found that new furniture that they brought to home, it has uh, an impact on increasing indoor air pollution. So what I come from this, what my takeover from my research here is that I always tell my patients and whoever wants to consult with me that do not try to remodel your house during pregnancy and do not set a new completely set of beddings and all the things for your baby. If you can bring used crib or used furniture to your baby's room, that is really helpful because the used furniture have already off-gassed the pollution. So they, they may still off-gassed some, but not that much as a new furniture. When you bring a new furniture, if you have to bring a new furniture, which is okay, but buy it about four or five months before the due date and then put it in the garage let it off-gas, what it has to off-gas. So we, there are so much that we don't know about these chemicals, their complexity, how they accumulated, and how they can break down to specific toxins that we, we don't really know about them at all. So it's very important to take a caution and uh, be careful on what we buy Specifically, specifically during pregnancy and when the baby is born for the baby's room and also for our house. That's so amazing because so many people do remodel before babies come. So that's okay. really great advice to do it um, a number of months ahead and let it off gas elsewhere. And, and I want to I'll go back to something you said about the temperatures. What What mm -hmm. do you recommend to people who don't have air conditioning or who don't um, who live, you know, a, a little bit more exposed. Yeah, so using fans is always very helpful. I recommend that people use fan all over the year. It doesn't matter if it's 
uh, winter if it's uh, summertime. But during the winter time, it's cold. They can just change the direction of the fan mm-hmm. and just let the air move around. And so that in that case, they don't have accumulation of air pollution in one spot. Specifically, if you have small children, the children are shorter. So and we know that most of the air pollution, they are heavier and they come down to close to the ground. So they probably uh, breed more of the pollution than adults because they are taller. Using fan that circulate the air, it doesn't let the pollution to accumulate in one specific height or in one specific spot because just it's more uh, of convenient for, for the pollution to be there. That's one thing. The other thing is that if you live in a clean area, you can open the windows and leave the doors open. That also, and the opening the doors and windows should be in both sides of the house so that the circulation of air happens. But if you live in, in close by the highway and looking at your uh, air pollution data on the websites, you find out that it's not a clean air outside outdoors so you should not open the door at all or windows because that may bring more of the pollution to your house so it's a little bit tricky but i think that people just by you know assessing the community that they live in looking at the epa or other free websites that shows the pollution they can find out where they live and how if it's safe for them to open the door and windows or not but using fans always is helpful. In one of my studies I did in nail salons that we went there and we measured, we approached about 100 uh, nail salons, but only 10 of them, they let us go in. And we went there and the air pollution was really, really, really high. So one recommendation that we gave them to add like about 10 or 15 fans in that specific a nail salon area, which the chemicals levels are really high, one or two or three fans wouldn't work. They need to add more of the fans over there to make it happen. So I brought this because I think that like people, even if they are pregnant, male or female, it doesn't matter. Female, females when they're pregnant or before, and also males while they want to have a baby, and so they go to nail salons and they are exposed to so many chemicals without them knowing that they are exposed and those chemicals can affect the sperm and also can affect the ovum. Pregnancy also is being affected by this uh, these, these pollutions that we are really, we don't know what they are and how they might affect. Some of them we know and some of them we have no idea how they work and how they uh, interact with the pregnancy mechanism, neurologic uh, process, and also hormonal uh, effects that they might have. And all those things are really important for us to take a precaution, be cautious where we are going, what we are doing, and specifically, and again, I just want to emphasize on that, specifically while you're pregnant or even if you are planning to become pregnant, that's very important. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Um, do are you aware of other kind of hot spots like nail salons where people either wanting to get pregnant or pregnant should avoid? Yes, I would say like you know where you work. So that's that's also some important place to look for. Like if you are working in a lab, a lab like pathology lab, it's they might have a lot of formaldehyde. So after I published my articles about formaldehyde, I have been getting email, emails from all over the world, from Canada, from England, and Japan, that, okay, I work in pathology lab. I, I always had a problem with my babies. I abort them so many times. So do you think it would be because of the exposure to some sort of chemical? And then when... We dig into it, we see that, okay, yes, really, they have a high formaldehyde levels in the lab, pathology lab or any different labs, lab also. And also another thing are nurses. So nurses are exposed to, at the hospital, exposed to all those cleaning materials, right? And also they are exposed to medication that they give to crush, they, they crush and they give to their patients. So those are also some places that we need to be careful like always wear gloves when you are using your disinfection materials and also ask your hospital to change the uh, the disinfection materials to to vinegar so that's something that uh, you know the hospitals could consider and I see nurses just saying that okay I hate vinegar smell but well, you like another type of cleaner that might be harmful for your body. So it's better to tolerate vinegar smell that probably has no harm for your body than smell something that smells good. So that's another place that nurses should uh, should be. Nurses also should take care of themselves and should uh, consider their exposure and try to work with their hospitals to lower their exposure to some sort of indoor air uh, pollution that may come from anything that happens at the hospital level. So, and also I have seen that people use air fresheners a lot, even in my one occasion that I had, I went to my children's school and the principal was using different type of uh, air fresheners for each season. And it wasn't just one of them. She would she had like four or five of them in the first floor of that school. <clears throat> but imagine people who, those children who have asthma, how they can tolerate this air freshener. <clears throat> and in one of my studies, air fresheners are really uh, impacting our indoor air. The fragrance is not really helping us. We may have a pleasure of smelling good, you know, air, but how about the harm that it brings us uh, throughout the years. And one other thing that I think people should be aware of is that, so when we got an infection, when we got an infection, then it brings us, uh, it brings us fever. So we know that what's happening, but for most of those chronic, uh, most of those diseases that are chronic and they 
may, might be related to exposure to environmental uh, hazards. They don't come like fever right away. It may take so many years, 10 to 20 years for, for them to, to, to show their impact on our health. So that is important that I wish that our you know, environmental exposures were just like infection, that we, we got an, a, a fever so that we noticed that, okay, I'm exposed to something. But unfortunately, environmental hazards are not like that. They are, they are hidden, they are chronically uh, impacting us, and unfortunately, our knowledge about them are very, very little. Yes, interesting. And it's really hard for people to avoid risk that seems so distant into the future. Um, I wanted to back up a moment to hospitals and ask you what you're learning about OR air quality. Um, I've read read some things about higher um, miscarriage rates related to the, um, probably to the anesthetic agents, but I'm not, I don't know this literature. What What have you learned about that? Yes, uh, so I have read and also learned that there are so many chemicals that are used for cleaning the operating room because you know that the operating room should be clean and should be a sterile. So, which is which what it should be, and I have no problem with that. But some of the devices and some of the cleaning materials that are used in these operating rooms needs to be revisited. For example, the electronic cautery that we use for closing the veins and prevent the, the uh, bleeding, they produce a lot of chemicals and the smoke that comes out of it, it actually travels like three to four feet farther than the original location. So it can impact our nurses, it can impact our anesthesiologists and also our physicians and all other team that works over there. For the patient, it might not be more harmful because it's just one-time exposure. But imagine that a nurse working in operating room and she's exposed to uh, the uh, pollution that comes from uh, using the electronic cautery that uh, during the day about 10 or 12 times for each operation. So that nurse is really at risk for uh, some sort of uh, health effects that might come from this indoor air pollution. So I'm trying to, to simulate actually in an operating room in my clean room and bring the, the, the devices that are used and probably I don't I, can, I don't want to cut any people so I may cut it like piece of beef or so and then measure the air pollution that comes out of it and try to find a way to probably add a little tiny fan to it or something that just collect gets the, all those smokes in or at least make it less uh, concentrated and prevent the uh, flying of the smoke farther. That's the that's the plan. But I will know more after simulating the the operating room here. That's super interesting. Yeah, I look forward to your results. Now, do I understand also that you've been simulating, as as you mentioned, what happens to air quality when nurses or pharmacists crush pills? Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's one thing that now we are writing the articles to publish. And, but I, I think that our crushing tool, which is a, a small container with a cap that we just twisted, that's the most more common one that is used in at the hospitals and also in our nursing homes. And it's not actually an efficient tool because you crush the medication as long as you have not opened that cap you don't have any problem but as soon as you open it and you transfer the powder to the to applesauce or some sort of fluid that you want to mix it and then to give it to your patient that's when all of those uh, pollution comes into the air and most of them are inhalable because they are really tiny. And there are so many problems with this uh, process. First of all, based on what we have done, we have measured the medication before crushing a medication that we put in the air, into the applesauce. And we see that actually this patient, patients do not get the accurate uh, dosage of the medication because part of the medication that sticks at the walls of that container and never comes out. And one other thing is that nurses not only breathe the air pollution like particulate matter or volatile organic compounds that comes from this powder, they also inhale part of the medication. Imagine that a nurse is working in oncology unit and crushed the cancer medication. So they are getting part of that medication into their body or narcotics they are getting part of narcotics into their body. We, I have not have a chance to test these products in nurses' body, let's say in their urine or in their blood, but that's my next step. But what I'm hearing and what I have simulated in my clean room that the dust that comes out and you can t- even take a picture of the dust when you're transferring the powder to apple cider. That is huge. And sometimes I wear black scrub and go to my uh, clean room and start crushing. And when I'm done, all my all of my pants are small pieces of, you know, particles of powder. And those are really, I don't know, we have never talked about it. We have never even thought about these things, but that based on my studies, it has a very high impact in indoor air pollution and also probably nurses' health. So the next step is to go to the hospital and see what's really happening in the medication room. This is just a simulation and, you know, I have simulated that uh, environment by going to the hospitals and looking at the, or measuring the indoor air in the exact medication room at the hospital and also measuring probably some uh, biomarkers of these medication in uh, in nurses' blood or urine. That would be interesting to see what is going on. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think it totally unappreciated. And I can imagine, you know, I, I can remember and think about how that happens in a clinical setting, either out in the wards at a nurse's station or in a designated med room, and also in pharmacies. And so, you know, oftentimes pharmacies, phar- the pharmacists in a hospital have a, a hood, but, you know, I'm not sure if they use that for for pill preparation. They might, 
Um, so that'd be another population that would be interesting to study as well. Yes, exactly. And I have actually a fume hood here that we have sim simulated the same crushing under the hood. And when the, you, the hood is on, you see nothing nothing coming to the air because it just suctions it, right? Mm -hmm. So probably just a simple recommendation to the hospital is that add a small fume hood in your medication room. Just a small one that, you know, nurses can turn it on and then it can absorb it, can suction all the... Uh, powders out of it, but there is another issue with that. That you know, if if it is suctioning it to the outdoor air, then we have medication particles of medication all over the place. <laughs> but the film wood that I'm using is non-vented, so it does just get everything inside the filter. Probably that's the best way to to recommend to the hospital. But yeah, there are there are so many things that we can, simple things that we can do to prevent. But I think that the problem was so far is that nobody had thought about this. That might be really important to talk about it at these times. Specifically, we see more of these crushing going on in nursing homes. Mm -hmm. And nursing homes are not hospitals. They have their own, or, own private organization and private founders. So mm -hmm. that's a little bit difficult to get into the the nursing homes and make them to add some other policies mm -hmm. to this. But we're working on that. Yeah, that's great. Well, thanks for, for your work on that. That's really important, especially when you think of a nurse who may be doing these things for 30 or 40 years. That's a significant uh, pattern of exposure. Mm -hmm. um, I want to also go back to something about your, with your midwifery experience and air quality. And I and it's, I was, I'm going to ask you a little bit about wildfires, and I realize you haven't studied wildfires, but it is such, an, such a hot topic for us in the West because we live mm -hmm. with wildfire smoke sometimes for weeks on end. We've already had wildfire smoke uh, in 2019 in May coming down from Canada. And so I know of a couple of studies that are underway, no results yet, on impacts on pregnancy during for both um, the pregnancy experience and the first uh, year of life afterwards. So do you have anything, to, any knowledge about that or or ideas about what you think will be likely findings? Yeah, so that's interesting that yesterday we were looking at some EPA exceedance data on air pollution. And we found that like during the years of, we were going back from 2006 to 2016. And we noticed that in some part of parts of like Arizona or here in uh, Tennessee, like above us in the Smoking Mountain, when when we had the fire, a big fire in 2000, and I think, I think it was 2016 or so. And you can, when you map, all, you, put, you put all the data about particulate matters and other others like particulate matter 2.5 or CO2 or nitrogen dioxide or sulfur dioxide and map them, you can see the red, very high spots of the pollution. For example, particulate matter in some different parts of California and Arizona and here in Tennessee. And when we dig into it a little bit more, we found out that those are actually the time that we had fire in these places. So having fire really increased particulate matter 2.5, uh, sulfur dioxide, and carbon monoxide, and probably many other 
and other pollutants, even probably the particulate matter that are high, larger size, larger than 2.5. And, but looking at the literature, you can find a strong relationship between exposure to particulate matters, for example, 2.5, the smaller ones with the stroke, with asthma, with COPD, and even pregnancy outcomes. So I'm just very interested to see the results of the study that you are mentioning about to see what's really the effect. But I'm pretty much sure that they're, they're going to find a strong relationship between those pollutions at that specific time period and also the health outcomes. And after looking at this map that I just mentioned yesterday, we are actually going to look at the significance, look at the relationship between particulate matter in that specific uh, time period and a specific county that had the fire and see what has happened to COPD incidence or asthma uh, hospital admission. So those are the things that I just, I, that's, that's, that's what I know about the, about this topic. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's helpful. And yeah, there's. I think there'll be a lot, a lot more coming out. It's, it certainly makes intuitive sense, and I think we'll have the empirical data before too long as well. Um, I we have already talked for a half hour. It's amazing. Your work is so interesting. Um, I do want to. I do want to get to your role in Annie, the Alliance of Nurses for Healthy Environments, because you are uh, the co-chair, co-leader of the research work group. Tell tell us about that. Yes, that's like I have been a member of Annie, I think, for the past 10 years. And last year, I became the co-chair for the research research group. That's one of the volunteer work that I love to be involved in. And I love to see how people are working in different patterns and how nurses are becoming more involved in the environmental health. And I think that nurses are the most, as, a, as the most trusted profession, they need to be the leader of environmental health assessment and environmental health uh, awareness in the communities. But in, think about it, who else can do that? We are the one who spend time with our patient in the clinic, at the hospital, or in the community. So, I love to work with this uh, group just because the more I get to to know them, the more I understand that what an amazing people we have, nurses we have, and seeing that people are joining, nurses now joining to this uh, organization more and more and we are becoming involved in what we are doing. That makes me very happy. And for the research group, I, I'm just so amazed that we are working and researching like the other basic science researchers or community-based researchers, like epidemiologists. And you, you can see the trend of the articles that are coming out every month, they all from nurses and nurse-related and also science-related uh, research. That makes me feel like, okay, we are 
becoming the leader of environmental health in this nation. And that's how I think that's how it should be. That's great. Nice, nicely said. Thank you. Um, I could ask you many, many questions, but I realize we uh, are about out of time. Could you tell us anything else that you'd like to say, either about nurses and environment, about your own motivation for this work, about how people could get involved, or anything else? Yes, I, I would say that I want to see that environmental health assessment included in our patient assessment. It is included in our uh, textbooks in any different levels, undergraduate and graduate, and even doctoral level. So I, I can't wait to see that time. And I think that it's all depends on, on, it all depends on all nurses to be involved in this assessment, to be think of, thinking of, okay, the, the nail policy that I'm using may may hurt not only me, but also people who are sitting close by, including my baby. The air freshener that I'm using because I just want to have a good smell may harm me. Or the soap that I'm using, the shampoo that I'm using that might harm me. But thinking about ourselves first will make us think about patients as well as our clients. It may make us think about our communities as well as our clients. So I really want all nurses to be involved in environmental health, try to assess as much as they can. And please know that you shouldn't give up everything at once. Let's give it some time, a year, five years, step by step, try to find a substitute for the shampoo, soap, or French name that you're using, or just try to quit that by the time. So don't put yourself on a lot of pressure because when I teach environmental health to my nurse practitioners here in our college, they become so frustrated the first or second uh, day of our classes. And say, okay, I didn't know that. How oh, I can put everything aside? And I'm always telling them that you don't have to do that all at once. Just give yourself time, try to absorb everything, and then step by step. You have used the soap for that many years. That's okay to use it for another six, six months or so. <laughs> so that's something that, yeah, you you should be very careful on because you can become frustrated really quick and quit environmental health at, at once. So we don't want that to happen. Right. And so it can be really overwhelming. I've, I've changed the way I talk with people about chemicals because it, once you start to unpack what we're up against in terms of our daily exposures and the lack of transparency about products, and the lack of knowledge, as you've said, about cumulative exposures, exposures at different times in development, we just don't know a lot of it. And yet we know that there is harm. Uh, it's hard to quantify sometimes. So so um, I have changed the way I, I talk with people about that, partly in related to what you're saying. It overwhelms people. They get freaked out about exposures everywhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, and you're right. We... We can't avoid them all probably, but we can make good choices, especially in the places where we spend a lot of time, in our homes, in our beds, with our products, and we can be aware of our exposures in areas where we have less control, might be at work, might be out in our communities. And as you say, we can be the voice uh, of reason about 
using caution where possible. So I, I really uh, agree with you about that. You know, one question I like to ask people is what what is your biggest concern about environment and health? And it may be, you know, this area of work that you're doing in terms of chemicals. But how would you answer that question? Yeah. I would say lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Although I do a lot of study, I do a lot of literature review, but still I have not enough knowledge because there is not enough information and enough studies out there about all those 700,000 or how many how many we have I don't know and there is no regulation on any of those so mm-hmm. it's very important to to for us to advocate and try to make the government to be responsible and it's just treat chemicals like medications like pharmaceutical products because it's it's almost the same but Unfortunately, we do not regulate it. So my big concern is lack of knowledge and lack of the regulation in regard to chemicals. And I hope that we see sometimes in the near future that people care more about this and our government sets rules and principles for the companies, for the industries to think and test all those new chemicals that they bring to the world really quickly and Unfortunately, us as scientists cannot catch up with them because, you know, doing research in environmental health is expensive, is time consuming. And as I said, it doesn't give or shows the symptoms and signs right away. It takes long time to show us some impact. Yes, right. Well, Azita, it's been just fascinating to talk with you today. Thank you so much for sharing your um your really important research. Uh, you're, you are one of the leaders, I'm sure, in terms of air quality related to nursing practice. And uh, as someone who works in acute care myself, I really appreciate that and look forward to reading your upcoming papers and learning more about it. Is there anything else you'd like to say today to the audience who may be listening? I just want to thank you for all your hard work and inviting people. And I'm really thrilled to be part of this community and I will do my best to to work and more do more research to make more awareness. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Azita, for being on the podcast and also for your contributions to science and the nursing profession. And thank you all for listening to the Nurses for Healthy Environments podcast. Check us out at environ.org where you can find this and many other episodes. Please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you next time.